0: Welcome to Paralyzed Nation. This is Israel's fifth election in less than four years. But what are these elections actually about? This is Amanda borchel Don. Join us and our Times of Israel political analysts, Chaviv
1: Retigur, Jeremy Sharon, Carrie Kellerland,
2: Tal Schneider, David Horowitz,
0: as we drill down on these hard-to-answer questions in this limited-edition podcast series that is exclusively for our Times of Israel community. Welcome to Paralyzed Nation. Thank you so much for coming. I am Deputy Editor Amanda borchel and we're calling this Paralyzed Nation. It's also this live event, but it's also a live recording of our podcast by the same name, Paralyzed Nation, that we're uh, giving exclusively to the community. So I urge you all to check it out now. As you all know, the TY at 10 series of events is celebrating, well, our decade of bringing you the news and the scoops and the analysis. So we're here to continue doing that. And this event is all based off of questions that you, our readers, listeners, gave to us through a form. So we have a bunch of questions that came in, many, many responses. And what I did was I took them and I grouped them into different themes. So the themes for tonight are uh, from electoral reform to the issues that we need to be talking about to strategic voting, things of that nature. And also what we're going to be doing is some interactive elements. So that will come up in a little bit. First of all, let me just introduce everybody here. So we have Tal Schneider here. Everyone say hello to Tal. Hi. She is a political correspondent for the Times of Israel and our Hebrew sister site Zman Israel. She was formerly the Washington DC correspondent for Mariv Delhi. She was also with Globes Business, a political correspondent and a political blogger running her own blog, which is just the great, greatest name, The Plog a political blog, the plug. She is a frequent commentator on Israeli radio and TV and has won a bunch of awards, really a bunch of awards. Next we have a man who needs no introduction to this uh, this audience, obviously, but David Horowitz. Say hi to David. <clears throat> David is the founding editor of the Times of Israel. He was also previously the editor of the Jerusalem Post and the Jerusalem Report. He's the author of two books, and he's just a great guy to work for. So let's say hi to David again. Next, we have Carrie Keller-Lynn. She is new on the staff, and I'm really excited to hear what she has to say. She's a political correspondent at The Times of Israel, and in addition to covering breaking news and delivering analysis on politics, the Knesset, democratic erosion, and cost of living issues. Carrie has reported on the Russian invasion of Ukraine from both Ukraine and Poland. I think that was like in your first month working with us, right? That was crazy. Yeah, she is also a recovering lawyer and regularly appears on television and on podcasts. And she's also the former host of the podcast, Us Among the Israelis. So hi to Carrie again. <laughs> Next, we have Jeremy Sharon, also new on staff. Very pleased to have him with us. He is the Times of Israel's settlements, police, and legal affairs reporter. No need for him, right? In this country, everything is okay. He has worked as a journalist in Israel for over a decade and reported on a plethora of issues affecting Israeli society, covered five general elections, two wars with Gaza, and reported on free cholent campaigns. And you know, who doesn't want free cholent, right? He wrote that. (laughs) And finally, we have Khabib Retegur, who is a political analyst at the Times of Israel. He has covered Israeli politics and the country's foreign and regional policies, as well as its fraught relationship with the Jewish diaspora since 2005. Hello, Khabib. So we're going to begin with some of the questions that you sent us. And again, I grouped them into different sections. So the first section we're going to start with is electoral reforms. And this will be more of uh, giving you some information that you requested. Later, we'll have more of a conversation about topics. So, Khabib, briefly, could you please talk about why one would or would not want to raise the electoral threshold to
3: five percent. You have one minute. Yes, but before I speak, I'd like to say a few words. Um, The idea of raising the threshold was almost universally accepted as a good idea, beginning in really the uh, late 2000s. Isaac Herzog was the head of the Labour Party at one point about for 13 years ago or so, and he urged 5%. There's a team of experts, professors, political scientists who recommended raising it to 6.5%. Um, and there are many democracies, Germany is one of them, where they set the bar very, very high, uh, five, eight, sometimes 10% for a party to get into the Knesset, and the, into the parliament. And the idea is that you don't want too many very small, marginal, usually very radical um, and inflexible actors in your parliament because it makes managing a government, managing a coalition, negotiating legislation very, very difficult. Israel had very low, uh, a very low uh, threshold of uh, 1% until it was raised in 1992 to one and a half, and And then again, I think in 2003, you do 2. And then in 2014, to 3 and a quarter. The Israeli experience of raising the threshold was the opposite of the, let's say, German experience. Because political parties, small, marginal political parties like Otsma Yehudit, like Bala, the most, I would say, anti-Zionist or viscerally anti-Zionist of uh, the Arab parties. Because those parties couldn't clear the three and a quarter threshold, they started having to unite or entire political camps would fall. And so they ended up joining with other parties and then setting the tone in those larger alliances uh, because they're the radicals. And radicals can always, are always more willing to walk away. So they always have the upper hand in negotiations. And so what we've seen is the raised threshold has actually Driven arguably a radicalization of Israeli politics because everybody needs the radicals in a way that they didn't when the radicals could just Safely fall below the threshold and not lose uh, that many votes to their broader political camp Uh, All of that is a complicated way of saying the argument for is to reduce the players make negotiations easier improve stability force voters into larger alliances and thereby moderate forced moderation onto or or put a pressure to moderate on more radical political forces. And the argument against is that by forcing radicals into the larger parties, you end up maybe a little bit radicalizing larger parties. Uh, Israel has experienced the
4: latter. Countries like Germany have experienced the former. It's complicated. But there are arguments for and against. I just want to add a, a point. Sorry, Amanda, I promised 15 seconds. Um, I'm going to add a point. You have in, one minute <laughs> from something that you wrote this week, which is really excellent. And I'd recommend uh, going to the website and finding it, which is that since the threshold was last raised in 2014, every election has been decided by parties who kind of sit at that threshold. And that's what we're very much seeing now. We're seeing an election where five or six parties are are kind of facing that that threshold. And whether or not they pass could determine the blocks, could determine the election. And another kind of fun tidbit to add, um, you'll hear parties say that they're concerned about wasting votes. And that's why, you know, smaller parties should maybe quit the race. You hear that maybe partially about Ayala Shaked, But actually, I think Israel, there's some data that Israel has wasted more votes when the threshold was lower then it was higher. Kind of, I think, speaking to your point about parties finding a way to to band together and, and work with the new rules as they are developed.
0: Okay, so moving on to our next question. I'm giving this to David because he grew up with a parliamentary system and many of us here did not. And the question is, could Israel ever go to a straight popular vote system and would it want to?
5: Okay, first of all, hi everybody. And I just, if if you didn't hear Carrie's recommendation of Chaviv's piece, Chaviv's piece on the threshold was really interesting. we published it a couple
3: of days ago. It was fascinating, I mean, and
5: you summed it up extraordinarily briefly.
3: And when you go to it, click on all the ads. I can't emphasize that enough, that's very... Sorry, so
5: I, I spent some years, um, very few voting years, actually, in a parliamentary democracy, because I moved here when I was 20, basically. I mean, when we trash the Israeli system, which we, you know, we're always critical of it, we should bear in mind that it's a very pure democracy. There are very few people, but in fact, nobody who goes out to vote on Election Day feels that their vote is going to be wasted, even if it ends up being wasted because it falls below the threshold. But you know that your vote really counts. Whereas, for example, in the American system, where I didn't grow up, you can become the president without winning the popular vote. And in the British system, your party can come second in 600-and-something constituencies and not get a single seat. So, you know, there are problems with with all of the systems. I don't think Israel, I mean, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, folks. uh, I don't think Israel is going to radically overhaul its electoral system unless really it comes to the conclusion that that it's totally unworkable. Because it requires people who are in office and who have been empowered by that system to vote potentially to, to kick themselves out of power
0: so that's exactly my question for tal actually it's good it's like you set it up dude amazing so is there any candidate that would want to really reform the system like reduce the number of ministers have ministers beholden to the people for example
2: yes so we do have a candidate that wants to reform the system this is the uh, head of opposition uh, benjamin netanyahu who was trying to enter back into direct voting, Uh, he was doing it in between the first and second election, where he he was trying to convince Mansour Abbas uh, from uh, the Islamic movement to go with him and change the parliamentary system into direct voting. Um, He said at the time that this was the only way, uh, the only thing that they thought of uh, cooperating with the Islamic movement, whereas if you ask Mansour Abbas, Netanyahu uh, invited him to the prime minister residence in order to cooperate in many other uh, aspects, but uh, Netanyahu was not able to um, get the votes to change the system. The problem is that in order to have constitutional change in Israel you need to have at least 61 people in the Knesset doing it together. If you have 61 people doing it together, then you m- might as well have a, a government. Once you have a government, Why change the system? Because you may may actually send yourself back home. So if someone is able to get 61, it doesn't need to change the system, but we are in a loop where we are unable to get 61 for, you know, everybody knows the deal, for five, um, you know, four election cycles, probably the fifth won't bring the 61 uh, as well. So the problem remains. I would say that some politician will try to fix some aspects of the system they will need to get 61 for that also but only when they have a government and only if this government is functioning it's big big bars to to
0: cross it kind of sounds like cinderella yes you can go to the ball if you have something suitable to wear and finish all your chores (laughs) not happening we're in catch 61 right okay so let's imagine if you will that this election too is not definitive then what happens? What's the timeline here for hmm,
2: the sixth election? Well, right now, if we judge by the polls and also if we judge by the real results that came in four cycles, we don't have a government on either either side. Netanyahu is between 59 to 60. It's not enough, He, he had 60 on the first election cycle, then he had 55 on the second election cycles, then he had 58 on the third, and then he had 59 on the fourth. So overall if you look at you know the real results it's between 60 to 55 and my you know I my prediction is that between 55 and 60 this is the number that he will get uh, I find it hard to believe that it will be anything you know the public hasn't changed if this is the case and Lapid obviously doesn't have 61 as well because we all know the numbers it doesn't have them if this is the case then they have an, up until February around February mid February Try and form a government. If it's about 12 weeks, you know, from uh, the swearing in of the Knesset. So, the election is on November 1st. November 15th is the swearing in of the 25th Knesset. Around February, uh, mid-February, we will know, you know, the end results. If the results is what we all think it will be, then another election within 90 days. So that brings us into May 23. For the sixth election cycle, and aren't we happy about that? <laughs> Don't you want to cover another election cycle? Uh, collective. M- my word death. up there was
5: abusive, by the way.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. C- can
5: we disagree just quickly? Yeah. I mean, I've never disagreed with you because you're so much smarter <laughs> and more knowledgeable than I'm. Really. I think there is going to be a difference this time. I think, and it comes, a lot of it comes to what Javid was saying about the threshold. Uh, I think the Arab turnout is going to be lower, and I think the Arab representation in the Knesset is going to be lower. And all the potentially vulnerable, almost all the potentially vulnerable threshold parties are in the outgoing coalition, or at least the non Netanyahu bloc. So since you made your prediction here, and we can all you know, know that you were right, I'll make mine, and you'll know that I was wrong. But I, I think it will be
0: definitive this time. Except for Jewish home, right? Which would have done yeah, right.
4: Yeah. Okay. and and can I add on to that? if If it becomes definitive and we do have a Netanyahu government, my bet is it's not going to be particularly stable. Um, I think he'll end up with a very narrow coalition uh, that will be beholden to to Ben which is a point that Haviv and I were chatting about uh, delightfully uh, on the way on onto the stage. Um, so we might actually see a sixth election, regardless in the next few years.
0: Okay, did somebody mention Ben I, I think we did hear Ben Greer. So who is, so, uh, is Ben Greer? So this is a question for you again, David, and please Jeremy, everyone else uh, chime in the netanyahu bloc appears to have no limits on its efforts to save the former prime minister from his legal woes does the israeli public have a red line would they stand for a drastic overhaul of democratic norms to give the legislature and the prime minister unbridled power could we potentially in the coming years see a mass mobilization of the public against the government on israel's streets or are we doomed
5: OK, remember that, somebody here wrote that question, right? We, we, we didn't create that question. Do, you know, the, the, would the Israeli public stand for this? And I mean, the Israeli public, and that's the, the, the essence of what we're looking at, is, is incredibly divided. You know, there are two majorities in the Israeli electorate, one quite overwhelming, and one hard to fathom, right? The overwhelming one is this, this is a country that has moved to the right, especially since the Second Intifada, when I think the middle ground in Israel shifted because we were being targeted every day and people in the middle ground lost faith in the ability to, to partner with the Palestinians and create some kind of genuinely safer future. So I think that was a, a massive trauma in the, in the mainstream Israeli psyche, and I think it abides, I think it is underestimated by international players and, and, and would be peacemakers and so on. So the country moved to the right. If you look at the outgoing Knesset, 71, 72 Knesset members from what we would call the political right. And you had this, uh, incredibly narrow, unsustainable, anti-Netanyahu majority. And that's, you know, so it's, you know, the, 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 you've got an incredibly divided public, you've got new, new trends all the time. So, you know, to the art to the, to the essence of the question, what, are the, what is the Israeli public ready to stand for? Lots of the Israeli public would be very, very troubled. You know, something like, I, I don't even know how to, how, to, how to quantify it, but a, a significant proportion of the Israeli public would be profoundly troubled by um, the, the current Netanyahu bloc, which includes religious Zionism taking power, especially because within religious Zionism you have Ben Gvir and Otsumayy who did. Lots of the Israeli public will be less troubled by that. Uh, I don't know exactly where Netanyahu would stand on this. It's interesting, for example, today he said, flatly, religious Zionism will be in my government. Now, does he mean religious Zionism as in Smotrich? Or does he mean religious Zionism, which currently, in a technical alliance, they're not merged as a party, uh, does he mean religious Zionism without or with Yehudit? Very, very, very interesting to know, and, and with all that comes with that. You know, are, are we doomed? I don't know about that last line of the question. You know, we're doomed to be very, very divided for the foreseeable future. And, you know, there are implications for a coalition that includes Ben-Gvir. I don't know uh, uh, that Netanyahu is, is immune to those concerns. I thought that at some stage he might want to reach out to Gantz, who of course partnered him in 2020, and say, listen, I don't want Benghira in the government either, help me. But the stronger that religious Zionism gets, and the more seats they gradually take away from Likud, which is happening now, the less able Netanyahu would be even arithmetically able to do that, even if, and it's a big if, Gantz was ready to agree to it. Sorry, that was a very long answer, and I apologize
0: really fascinating. Jeremy, this is a question for you. It seems contradictory to extend freedom of speech to extremists who, if successful, ruthlessly suppress the speech of those with whom they disagree. My questions are, if in order to maintain a tolerant society, the society must retain the right to be intolerant of intolerance, are we not too late for this now? Are we putting our country in danger because we don't understand this paradox?
1: Well, I, I think that uh, to a certain extent, you have, to, you have to think about how you're gonna define extremism and to that extent, how you're then gonna ban those extremists. And, and it's dangerous to, to, to say, well, anyone who, to, to have a broad defi- definition of what is an extremist and then uh, apply that across the board because then we're gonna lose a, um, a critical aspect of our democracy. On the other hand, Israel does already have laws against incitement to racism, incit- incitement to violence, and, and those laws have been implemented and, and used against racist, uh, uh, racist MKs and parties. The, the famous example is Kach, uh, the far-right uh, Jewish supremacist organization, which is the political predecessor to Osmar Yehudit, uh, and also to uh, some of the politicians of Otsma Yudit uh, in, the most, in some of the most recent uh, political uh, uh, rounds of elections. Uh, Michael Ben Ari, who, uh, who was one of the founders of Otsma Yudit, and, uh, along with Baruch Marzel, another founder. So, so there are safeguards already in, in place. And, and broadly speaking, I think that that's something which is important that there is speech which is beyond the pale and which should not be tolerated. And, and and when that has been crossed, then the Supreme Court uh, has, has made sure that those people can't run. Uh, and, and also we should mention that there's other extremists uh, as well. Um, Balad is a, a very radical organization whose former members uh, colluded with Hezbollah. And uh, even Ayman Odeh, uh, the head of uh, khadash uh, he's, he's visited um, uh, terror- Palestinian terrorists in jail, Maram Magouti and Ahmad Salat. So, and there's been frequent attempts to, to ban them as well, and the Supreme Court has so far declined to do so. But uh, I think uh, you also, we, we should also bear in mind the nature of the extremists we're talking about. We're talking about Ben Gvir, we're talking about um, his policies such as deporting disloyal Arabs. And you know, Baruch Marzel said that, you know, he thinks about half of Arab Israelis are disloyal. So, to, to that extent, Ben Gvir has been very careful not to cross those kind of lines and not to get himself banned like his his colleagues are. They're perhaps more radical and ideological even than he he is and less smart. But I think that's also part of the media's job to expose uh, a facade, if it is a facade, uh, to expose that facade and and show the the general public what the true nature of any uh, political party is Um, and that's a hard job uh, that's a hard job to do, and and I think also um, it's the job of the government to to educate the citizens as to how important democratic freedoms are, and I'm not sure that's something which Israeli governments, successive Israeli governments, have have been very successful in either.
0: Anyone who has not read Jeremy's pieces on Itamar Ben gvir should definitely look for them on the site. Just really deep, fascinating, nuanced everything you want from journalism, of course. Rina, we're going to try our interactive element again. So everyone grab your phones if you'd like to give it another whirl. Are you guys ready? Everyone ready? Enthusiastic yes? Yes. Sure. Yes. Okay. Rina, so who is most likely to be the next prime minister? And you have uh, the ability to rank them, essentially. Can you have more than one answer, Rina? Um, Test the bounds of your technology, essentially
3: if you expect a rotation government, just pick the first one, which is the one that ends up being, so
5: anyways. I've been disenfranchised, I can't vote.
0: Everyone able to vote for that question? Yes, okay, great. So, of those who have voted, we have a a clear uh, majority, shall we say, of uh, Netanyahu, who's going at 33, Yair Lapid, 20, Benny Gantz, six, Merav Mikhaeli, one. Oh, Yair Lapid is inching up. Okay, the race is on, but not really close at all. Okay, maybe reflecting reality, who knows? Okay, so Rina, are we ready for the next slide? That's a good slide, Rina. Okay, who do you think would make the best prime minister? Not who do you think will win, who do you think should win? And you can do more than one on this one. It's a ranking thing.
3: Is this anonymous?
0: This is totally anonymous. Just let it go. Wow, this is pretty amazing. Okay, so in first place, we have Yair Lapid of Yeshatid. Second place, Benny Gantz, National Unity. Third place, Merav Mikhaeli, Labor. We should take a picture and send it to her. Ayelet Shaked, Jewish Home, fourth place. Definitely heard as well. Let's hear for the women here Zahava Galon and Meretz in fifth place. Benjamin Netanyahu, Likud 6, Avigdor Limemen, Yisrael Beteno, and then Betzalah Smochet, Religious Zionism. That is really fascinating. David,
3: All right. right. I do want to say something about uh, prime ministers in Israel. Uh, we've just essentially not really had a prime minister in Israel for quite a long time. Uh, a parody prime minister is a prime minister who's only in control of half their government, they literally can't fire the other half. Uh, We have had Prime Ministers who have been interim Prime Ministers and struggling to pass state budgets and failing to pass or trying not to occasionally pass state budgets. Uh, And the State of Israel has performed fantastically well under conditions in which its political class was essentially completely missing. That's not a small thing, folks. Which means that you should vote relaxed. It's gonna be okay. Khabib, thank you for that, actually.
5: <laughs> Can you, I think Khabib has to repeat that at the end of the evening. I think we have to go home with that message. Like, Relax, I think it's
3: going to be okay. That'll be... Well, ser- well, cause <laughs> the last question was, who do you think is going to win? Bibi wins. And this question is, who do you want to win? Lapid wins. This is a very, it's very interesting Can say sad, something? anxious
2: <laughs> audience. So Khabib was uh, kind of joking, but let me just be serious here for a minute. I saw in recent years a big uh, gap between the way Israel's Leaders, one after another, handling their own, their, the country's foreign affairs uh, on many successes. If you look at uh, both. Uh, The former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had some successes, like great successes, with the Abraham Accords and good relationship with uh, the Republican administrations then. You had Bennett and Lapid, good relationship with the Democratic administrations and fixing their relationship with Europe, then working on a good relationship with Jordan and so on. I can give you many, many examples. Netanyahu had an amazing relationship with Egypt, with Assisi, and you um, definitely see a huge gap between the way that the foreign affair is handled and if you compare it to the way the country is, you know, the political crisis, the internal political crisis. So how come people can be so successful when it's, you know, the country's face towards, you know, outward? And when when you look at the handling of this, you know, many election cycles and not, not having a budget. and really mismanagement of everything. What, what, how come, how come it's a huge, uh, it's like um, a split personality. Country is doing well on outward and it's doing very, very bad on the inside. And uh, I think maybe some of the politicians should should take a note from Israel's foreign affair ministry or Israel's Mossad or Israel's other people who are doing foreign affair policy and, you know, kind of try to pick up a lesson you know also turkey i mean i have so many examples for that it's just unbelievable this huge gap so, so they should I be gap.
0: underpaid like the foreign ministry isn't and go and strikes all the time is that hurt the part key of is it? to underpay
2: yes yeah. <laughs> uh, Some, but- something is done right out there between the mossad shabak sahal and the
4: foreign affair ministry i'm talking about foreign affairs not about internal affairs is it because sometimes the foreign minister is the same person as the prime minister <laughs>
2: Well, as I said, Netanyahu had huge successes on the foreign affair front. We're not going to take it from him. He actually started the maritime border uh, negotiation two years ago. Um, and obviously, he had some failures, but overall, you know, he put Israel in a very good position in his 12 years of uh, governance. And Bennett and Lapid actually continued many of those foreign affair policies.
3: Who here is American? Okay. So uh, everyone's sitting down, right? Israel's budget deficit this year was zero. <laughs> Israel's GDP, uh, debt to GDP is about 60%. I think America's is, what, 130%? G- we're, we're Germany-level fiscal responsible. The Treasury of Israel, the Finance Ministry of Israel, is an, inf- is an incredible organization, phenomenal organization. You
2: want to talk about the energy crisis, which we don't have.
3: The energy crisis we don't have. Uh, anybody here have American friends or family back home? Yeah, talk to them about COVID. Or inflation. Or inflation. Folks, this is a well-run country. It's just not run by the politicians.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
3: okay, so let's go back to the
0: questions that you asked us to ask, and let's talk about strategic voting and stances of, of the parties. So. Of the parties polling close to the electoral threshold, Ra'am, Labor, Meretz, whose absence from the next Knesset would have the greatest negative or positive impact? Meaning, how, if at all, should this influence how this question writer votes? Whose absence would have the greatest impact? Which party on the border of the threshold would have the greatest impact?
3: I'm sorry, who should they vote for to get... I didn't understand the question.
0: Well, the question is essentially who would have the greatest negative or positive impact, meaning who should they try and save with their lifeline of a vote? Which party should be saved well, well that, and remain in the Knesset?
4: That's pretty normative, right? It, it depends on who you want to ultimately to be the prime minister. Uh, we'll, we'll start with y- Yir Lapide here since that seems to be the crowd favorite. Um, if you wanted to save Yir uh unfortunately, I don't think you can get him a government. But what you can do is help him block anyone else from forming one. And to do so, he needs merits, he needs labor, he needs khadashtal, and he needs Rom. The party among them that's probably most vulnerable could be Khadashtal, could be Merits, could be Rom. My my vote is that Labor is not gonna be the, the first to go, but you know, see me on November second. If you wanted Benjamin Netanyahu to be prime minister, you would not vote for Ayelet Shaked, who's also hovering around the threshold because you don't want your vote to go to waste for the right work block. Um, and should the Arab parties not make it into the Knesset, that's relevant. Because if you think about the system, it's not really about the parties themselves, ultimately, on November 2nd. It's about the blocks. And you have the right religious Netanyahu bloc you have the non-Netanyahu block, might be the the former change coalition, and then you have this traditionally non-aligned wedge of Arab parties in the middle. And if that wedge of Arab parties disappears, which it has a much greater chance of doing now that the joint list further split itself, because Balad's not gonna pass the threshold, um, then what happens is that the other parties will grow proportionally, and that might actually push Netanyahu to having that 61 narrow government.
0: Okay, so now this follow-up question uh, touches on somewhat of what you said, Carrie, but to be strategic and strengthen the left center specifically, would my vote be more effective given to Yesh Atid, or Labour, both parties that look like they're going to pass the threshold?
4: So there hasn't been much movement between those blocks that center-left block and that right-religious block, which is why we are still polling at a standstill. And, and I'll say these polls are notoriously incorrect, but they also are tremendously influential, so influential so that we have to stop them a few days before the election, because they, they really influence who Israelis will vote for in this kind of strategic game. Um, so if you're, you're looking at it this way, could you repeat the question one more time? I lost myself on my thought.
0: <laughs> Would my vote be better go to Yesh, Atid, or right, okay. Labor. So
4: the, the votes haven't moved between the blocks, but what Yesh, Atid has done is it's grown a little bit on the backs of other parties within its block. So the block sizes haven't changed, but merits and labor have shrunk a little bit. And so maybe if you were concerned that labor would not cross, you would vote for labor. If you're more concerned about the block, maybe you'd vote for merits. Uh, Again, this is Merritt's campaign slogan. It was last time. It's again this time. If you don't vote for us, they get 61. If you vote for us, Lapid gets 61. Again, Lapid's probably not going to get 61. It'd be very difficult for that to happen. Um, But if you do feel like that's what's compelling you to have a strategic vote, I would say uh, voting for the smaller party that's hovering near the threshold would be the strategic choice. Okay.
0: Now, this is for Tal. What is the real difference, policy-wise, between Yeshatid, which is run by Yair Lapid, and Machane
2: HaMamlachti, or what do we call it? National unity? Yeah, it used right. to be blue and white. Used now to it's Machane HaMamlachti. Right? It also includes Tikva by Gidon Saar. It's a blend of uh, names. Nobody remembers what they called anymore. Uh, in Hebrew, we just make a short one, Machmal, uh, Machane HaMamlachti. It's Machmal, uh, you know, it's like when you feel sorry for someone. So... Um, the question was, what is the difference between them? And, and yes, I did. You know what? I don't think there is much difference, except maybe for Benny Gantz being um, more welcomed, more acceptable by the ultra-Orthodox uh, parties. Um, so he claims that because um, he is not vetoed by any of them, of the Orthodox uh, uh, parties, he may be the only option to be a prime minister. Um, that's questionable, because I don't know if he can form any government without the Likud inside. If he doesn't want to sit with the Likud, it's a problem. I do not really see him heading a government when he has 12 seats. Obviously, it's weird, because Bennett had six seats but and formed a government. But um, um, that's the, the line between him and Lapid. Uh, being able, maybe, to maneuver more things around when elections are done being more flexible than Lapid is.
4: And and because there were so many American hands, I just want to call out something that was so weird to me when I first moved here. That answer is is pretty similar to the kind of answer I would have given. It's not about the platforms. It's about the personalities, and more than that, the lunch table politics. It's who you will sit with. And so when you vote for Gantz, you're voting for a different set of, will you sit with me, than when you vote for Lapid. Right. Mm -hmm. That's really fascinating. there's
3: There's one, I mean, they're different voters. Um, and, and, and the Israeli elections are not about policy. What's the difference between Lapid's policies and Netanyahu's policies? You have to really start scratching and getting into profound nuances to find one. Um,
2: I think that the, the- One has indictment and one, another one doesn't handle criminal indictment, for, for, for starter.
3: But that's really more a scheduling question rather than a,
2: <laughs> it's not a policy
3: question. Folks, um, but but, but they do represent profoundly different parts of Israeli society. Our our parties, because we have a single constituency, proportional representation, nationalist, blah, 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 because of the way our system works, our parties essentially represent different social and religious and ethnic groupings within Israeli society. We're a very divided society, a very tribal society. And uh, most of the people in this room come from one or two of those tribes, not all 17 um, and, and that's, all, that's true everywhere. That's true everywhere in this country, everywhere where people are gathering before the election and listening to journalists talk to them. The journalists are dressed like them, and the journalists are speaking with their accent, and they're telling them things about their tribe. And so, and so that's what the parties represent. Gantz's people are essentially what used to be the hawkish wing of the Labour Party back when the Labour Party drew 44 seats under Rabin. Um, and, and Lapid's people are the Shinui secularist center uh, of 15 years ago, now led by uh, Tommy Lapid's son. So th- they're different... Cultures, even if their policies are the same. I, I just I don't think the policies of of, of or, or
1: the nature of Gantz's party, which is um, you know allied with really very strongly right wing elements, can be exactly compared to Yesh you You, Gilan Sar is against a two state solution declaratively. So uh, Zev Elkin, all the same, and lives in lives in a settlement, um, and 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 Gantz himself, I, you know, has. Um, uh, I don't want to say pandered, but adjusted himself to a, a, appealing, I think, to a much more right-wing uh, electorate. And, and for instance, there was a, a big settlement campaign recently to set up new outposts. And, and he took, he, he, you know, Gantz as Defence Minister was responsible for having those outposts removed. But he took a lot of care to say, while we remove illegal outposts, we are interested in strengthening the existing settlement blocks um, and, and, and settlement movement. And and that's not something which I think I've heard uh, I've heard uh, Yair Lapid uh, talk about.
4: So Gantz fought really hard to kind of capture those soft-right votes that were, you know, free game once Yamina dissolved itself. Um, but we also have to remember that his party includes serious leftist elements, as well as a number three who has gone on record and said that he wants to separate from the Palestinians. He wants to leave the West Bank. And this was kind of one of the key questions that people had when Gantz formed this national unity party. Um, It was not just how do you translate it from Hebrew to English, which consumed an entire day of reporter's time, but it was also what is their policy going to be? Because they took New Hope, which was basically a political refugee from the Likud party, not an ideological refugee from the Likud party. And it combined it with blue and white, which has some very leftist elements. And then added Gadi Eisenkot, who said he wants to separate from the Palestinians. And I think there's a legitimate question after election about whether or not this party is going to be able to have a clear stance on some of these these really big issues for right-wing voters.
0: Now, moving on to the Likud. Can Netanyahu survive in the opposition if he doesn't form a coalition? If not, what happens in Likud? David, do you want to take a stab at this?
5: Well, first of all, I think Tal's going to be smarter than me, but yeah, I'll, I'll do a first step. And I just want to add one last thing to the last round, which was, and, I, and you can help me on this as well, they got Matan Kahana into their party, but mm-hmm. the Gantz's people, yeah. and they did nothing with it. I mean, if you're trying to capture the soft right, and you've got this extremely um, um, More sharp, um, impressive, former fighter pilot, say, at Makkal, extremely orthodox, mm-hmm. you're looking for... Th- that's, why, why, they didn't present him. On the
2: night that he joined,
5: I found that astonishing. So maybe you'll tell us. Can I preempt the other question? You may. You why, may. why do you think they they have so under promoted?
2: I think he's in number number ten or something, yeah, and now they're down to twelve. If they lose more seats, he might be out of the Knesset. It's unbelievable. Um, yeah, he he's, he was supposed to be a, a huge asset to them, and. Um, you know, only if Ayelet will collapse and will not run or something, maybe they will be able to catch some of her uh, base. But other than that, it's a really a waste of, uh, of an asset.
5: That's what I thought. Um, and just on to the actual question that you asked, Amanda. Um, so, you know, again, I defer to you on what happens next. But Netanyahu said, I'll keep going until we're back in power. So he's not going to easily go anywhere. He's I mean, we all know this, but it's worth stressing. He's he's such a, an indefatigable campaigner I don't even remember which election it was but on the at the end of election day it might even have been the last one uh, if not the time before um, we, we, as the polls were, were closing we saw Benny Gantz arriving home in the back of a car looking totally exhausted and Netanyahu had was, was on the beach at Netanya in his in his suit with a megaphone shouting into the Mediterranean to people you know if you haven't voted yet there's still a little more time come and vote he's 72 years old 73 this 73 week 73 this week yep. yeah i should know that this that's a, the same okay. day as my daughter's birthday it's uh, so october 27th well, i think it's the 29th uh, if i know okay. her if i know that right yep yeah. yeah. oh, it's the 21st you see <laughs> 21st. don't don't even go there lisa so okay, good, fine. Okay, okay good very close he was good. born in 49 right. so. this isn't
3: going uh airing <laughs> you're anyways. talking about a
0: hebrew birthday it's okay
5: <laughs> yeah that's what it's it was right. yeah so what what was i saying yeah just that he's you know he's He's, he's not going to give up easily, that's for sure.
2: he's very energetic, and if I may add, I was talking to one of his loyalists, this is how it goes today as reporters because Netanyahu doesn't speak to to the media, he speaks only to loyalists and then I spoke to one of his loyalists and I asked him, you know what's the plan if Netanyahu doesn't get you know beyond sixty And he said he will be very happy to be Israel's national camp leader forever, and that means you know. Becoming, um, you know, an opposition leader, but the opposition leader of half of the country, and staying in the Knesset and serving from the opposition and embolding himself as the greatest leader of Israel's nationalist movement or nationalist uh, camp or so on, and he has no plans to retire. We do know that he now wrote a book, so the the, the thought about you know retiring and writing a book. He's doing it. He's writing a book. <laughs> uh, so you,
5: I, I, read, I read the book over the weekend, by the way. The Acknowledgements, which is page 600 and something, starts, in the Acknowledgements, he says, he wrote this, make of this what you will. He wrote this during, including during the budget debate right. in the Knesset <laughs> plenum. Now, you know what happened to the budget when he was Prime Minister, right? We didn't have one. So when the subsequent government was debating the budget, yeah. some of that time he was writing. And as by well. the way, in, more, wait, some, in his
2: defense
3: so, budget are thousands of votes. Yeah. It's many hours. But the other MKs are sitting more, in there playing on their phones. You know, the the ins- of- a little
2: bit more from the inside on the book. As you said, he wrote it during budget. Uh, but you know what was interesting to me and, and as I saw most of you are Americans, he is an American. He wrote this in English only. And in order to get the book into Hebrew, you had to hire a translator into Hebrew because his writing skills are much, much, much better in English and nowhere near writing skills in Hebrew. So he feels like me when I'm trying to write in you know, Times of Israel in English, because my Hebrew is better than English, so. <laughs> Your English is perfect. But he needs a translator. So that was amazing to me that the English. former prime minister went. of Israel needed a translator in order to transfer his book to Hebrew. That's unbelievable.
0: It is. OK, Irina, are you ready? Yeah everyone break out your phones we're going to try again we have three more slides for you guys okay all right this one is fun we picked this one out okay the next government will complete its term that's
5: amazing all
3: right we're taking bets on definitely 400 to 1 400 600 to 1. Okay, it's
0: looking pretty clear here, I have to say. Uh, We have 54 and climbing, Uh, no way. 11, maybe, maybe? Vida, you said it so much better when we were putting the question together. How do you say your maybe? Maybe, very good. And absolutely zero, definitely. So, okay,
3: clear winner. Next slide, please. Wait, just a second, let's do the math. Israel has a third, it's the 36th government that will one day be sworn in? 37th. 37th, and it is 75 years old. With 25 Knesset. So if my math is right, definitely is bad math.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Final score, 58, no way. Okay, move it on. Okay, this is one to make everyone feel really good. We just threw it in here. How many seats are in the Knesset? And it's between zero and 250. You have to pick a score. Yofi, 120 seats. Okay, kollektivot, everyone. Or as my little boy used to say, oh a a od oh a Okay, next slide. Which issues should the next Knesset tackle first? And this is, you can choose as many as you wish. But which issues should the next Knesset tackle first? Okay, I'm going to read out the scores because, as noted, this is also a podcast. So we have here, things are slightly changing, but essentially we have corruption at 30, electoral reform, 20, two-state solution, 22, arms sales policy, seven, cost of living, 48, religion and state issues, 37, security and defense, 33. So the top three are obviously cost of living, religion and state issues, and security and defense. Where was our run? Oh my gosh, we forgot security and defense. There you go. (laughs) Yofi. Okay, so now we're going to turn to issues, actually. You had some questions on issues. Let's begin with this question, which uh, provoked a couple interesting responses when I floated it earlier. 32% of the population were recently polled to be supportive of the two-state solution with such an imbalance how do we understand the repetitive almost 50 50 coalition numbers
1: Weighing on that based on the polling here uh it doesn't seem to be too important it doesn't seem to be on the top of the voters minds and 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 therefore even though there's an imbalance against the two or 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 not very many people wanting the two-state solution doesn't seem to be an important electoral issue. I don't hear anyone talking about it on on the on the, the nightly news. I don't hear um Yahulapid talking about it very often and
4: uh, He he just said at the UN General Assembly. Uh,
1: yeah. Yeah, okay. And and did he did he say it on Channel Twelve or Channel no, thirteen? <laughs> did he say it in Israel? This no. is a,
3: this is a centre left room we discovered earlier. And the two state solution is fifth place.
4: Right. so I'll add two things to that if that's okay. Uh, the first is that although Israeli politics usually divided itself on left and right based on uh, security, how to make peace with the Palestinians, uh, that's been broken over this last you know, five election cycles. The question's now yes or no to Benjamin Netanyahu and unfortunately that's very much persisting to, that de- to the day. That's one of the things. And then two, to kind of back up your point, Jeremy, Um, Although I think it's about 30% of Jewish Israelis, uh, according to IDI's numbers, uh, who support a two-state solution, or I think the wording was find it acceptable, 40% would support the status quo, aka doing nothing. Uh, and then, you know, there's a 17% that support uh, a one-state solution. Then if you look at the Arab community, the supports for one state, two state, and, and almost none for, for doing nothing. So I think we, you know, just attesting to your point that this is a central left room and, and this was not the priority, uh, people are very comfortable with, with how it is right now. And this is not the pressing issue, unfortunately.
3: Or, or despairing. Yeah. Or, despairing. or they don't see a path forward on that issue. or Or they're just not aware or
1: or uh, have any idea what's going on and not paying attention. People in
3: this room are paying attention. Yeah. Let's do a vote on comfortable despairing. You can raise your hand in both. <laughs> who thinks that this situation, we can, we can live with it?
5: You're talking about the current situation
3: in terms of relations between relations us and, and, and the, the pa-
5: Palestinians. Palestinians. We
3: can live with it. And who despairs?
0: Vast majority for despair here, Khabib, so I don't think people are comfortable, but perhaps despairing is is directly the, the question answer. Now, with climate change, speaking of despairing, with climate change an existential threat to Israel and indeed the entire world, why isn't it being discussed by the Israeli political parties? David, you want to take a stab?
5: I don't have great wisdom there. I will say we have a really terrific environment reporter. Her name is Sue Sterks, and she does lots of you know very very important reporting. You know, it's an incredibly important issue. Um, why isn't it? I mean, you know, Karine Al-Hara, who you know is now the energy minister, would say she's been you know working very hard. You know, I think it has been a, an issue for this coalition. I think things have changed a little bit. Not too many years ago, when a certain minister was being offered uh, the environment ministry, she was profoundly in, insulted. And I don't think that would be the case anymore. So I I think it has risen a little bit.
0: Okay. Now, this next question is for both Tal and for Jeremy. I'm going to start with you, Tal. Can the following issues be addressed and resolved if Likud is restored to power? Number one, Jews can pray on the Temple Mount. I'll read them all out, and then you can pick what you would like. Number two, bias, nepotism in legal court systems. Number three, annexation of the West Bank. And number four, education of hate or violence in Muslim schools. So which would you like to address, I'll Tal? i take one and three, Okay. do you want me
2: to go only for one of them? Good. Start um, with one and we'll continue. As you know, actually they both uh, relate to the same um, issue, um, Jewish prayer on Temple Mount. Uh, can only be done if Israel will open up the peace accords with the Jordanian, which was signed in 1994. Israel can, can go to the Jordanian and say, yeah, let's open up the agreement, but then once you open up the agreement with the Jordanian, you're gonna encounter lots of other issues which are not going to be comfortable to Israel. Now, per, as, you know, with respect to security, the peace accord with the Jordanian that was signed again in 1994, considered until this day one of the biggest Military or security assets of the country, this is actually defined as an asset because it's um, prevent any kind of attacks coming up coming from um, the east, plus um, you know the kingdom is uh, very very important to the security in the Jordan Valley and so on. There is a cooperation out there. So if you wish to open up those agreements, it will have a cost. We already saw a bit of a deteriora- deteriorating situation between Israel and the Jordan um, back um, you know, during the end of the Netanyahu's years. I do not think that Netanyahu will wish to open up this. Uh, and we're talking about you know, 61 for Netanyahu if he's in power. Um, even even placing magnum, magnometers or you know checking points uh, for people who are going over Temple Mount is an issue, so, so I don't see that happen. Um, the can third just, can one- Can I just jump in on that one? Just, yeah, just please, put, Jeremy, jump in on this I one mean, first. Yeah. I think,
1: I, I agree with Todd that that would, it, it would, allowing that would create um, a really deep problem with Jordan and a, and, a, and a massive diplomatic crisis. But on the other hand, you have to think, if Bibi's got a, a government of of 61 uh, members, including Itamar Ben Gurion and Bezalel Smotrich, who are both supporters of uh, Jewish rights on the Temple Mount and prayer, Itamar Ben is a frequent uh, has been a frequent visitor to the Temple Mount, uh, and and you have to you have to wonder uh, how far they going to they will want to push uh, Netanyahu on that issue, and also how far how much they care about diplomatic crises, uh, or even if they would want a diplomatic crisis. Or a, a security crisis um, which, which sounds kind of like very doomsday and Armageddon-ish but um, we're talking about a very radical party and a party which doesn't is not one to shy away from a fight and which is incredibly ideological and is as very interested in advancing that ideology as far as possible and, and with, with those elements in in a coalition I don't I don't know if I also bearing in mind Netanyahu's willingness to Increasing willingness to, over the years, to concede to his, um, you know, coalition partners, and the uh, ultra orthodox enlistment law, where the, he just allowed the ultra orthodox parties to gut any semblance of of, uh, of equality in, in in the draft, uh, the 2018 settlement settlements arrangements law, which allowed for um, uh, private Palestinian property to to be to be confiscated or, or to 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 be used uh, retroactively to be legalized for illegal settlements he hasn't he hasn't pushed back on those issues and in fact it's been the high court which is, has uh, has has struck those laws down he, and and why hasn't he pushed back on those issues because of his uh, of, of his political and legal um, you know uh, problems so uh, I, I, I do see a, I, I do i do see that not as an inconceivable uh, reality
2: Okay, a little difference of opinions healthy. All right, Tal, so you wanted to answer Uh, as well on the I'll make it short on the annexation. I think, uh, if you all know, Israel signed the Abram Accords in 2020. And part of the Abram Accords was Israel agreed not to annex anything at the moment. And this agreement is in power. I mean, Netanyahu back then agreed to not annex, uh, I think, maybe for four years or so. Uh, It's coming up in two years, but maybe it was three years, I'm not sure. It's coming up, but you know, it's huge part of the deal with the Emirates and Bahrain was the non-annexation agreement. And uh, would Netanyahu want to lose those agreements? I don't think so. Jeremy, do you have what to add on the annexation issue, as our settlements reporter?
1: Uh, again, that's another issue which uh, the which which uh, religious Zionism Smotrich and, and Ben gvir want. Uh, Bankver wants to annex the entire West Bank. This is something which uh, also people are not, not talking about. He wants to annex the entire West Bank um, and not and, and not give the Palestinians uh, 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 any right to vote in Israel. Uh, it would cause like Tal says um, a massive diplomatic crisis with Israel's newfound friends in in, in the Gulf, uh, surely with the Biden administration um, and uh, I think any unilateral steps are, are, are I agree with Tal, probably un, unlikely
5: Can, I just want to, I just say, you know, we're, we're talking about um, a hypothetical situation. It would depend on what exactly the coalition is, but a, a Netanyahu-led coalition that includes both the elements of religious Zionism, in other words, Smotric and Ben-Gvir, would, would we would be in a in a very different reality? So Netanyahu, there was this, You can call it what you like, shambles, fiasco, misunderstanding over annexation in the context of the Trump plan, right? And again, Netanyahu deals with this in his book, and there's lots of contradictory arguments about what happened. Netanyahu fully intended to annex all the settlements in the Jordan Valley, about 30% of the West Bank, but within the framework of the Trump plan. And he claims to have thought that that's what he was going to be allowed to do. He was accepting the plan, and the Trump administration would allow him to do that. Once the administration pushed back, he completely moved away from it. He didn't do it. And he did sign the Abraham Accords, which, as Tal said, included a, a crucial component as far as those signatories were concerned, that there would be no annexation. But now he would be in a coalition with people insisting on it, um, quite possibly even conditioning their, their participation in the, in the coalition. He's going to have potentially some real dilemmas. But if that was the government, you know, Armageddon might be a little bit strong, but we will be in a very different reality if that is the coalition on issues like this and others.
0: I always wondered if annexation was more of an Isra Bluff, like, did he really intend to do it or not? Yeah, I think
5: he really intended to do it, only, however, because he thought he had American administration support. He thought this was, wow, there's this rare moment where I can do this now.
3: But, you know, Amanda, this whole conversation highlights an enormous gap in the potential future Netanyahu coalition, which is a gap that it goes much deeper than specific opinions. Netanyahu is a man who believes and has believed for as long as he himself remembers himself that Israel's strengths don't come from the the uh, the sort of honor posturing that drives a lot of the politics on the, for example, Ben-Gvir side of the Israeli political system. Um, Hezbollah is constantly posturing and declaring and thumbing its nose at us and Right, daring us to... Guys, in, uh, since 2007 when Hamas took over Gaza until today, Israel's GDP per capita uh, has doubled. Has doubled. Our GDP per capita is now New Zealand's. And Hamas tells Palestinians we're the last bastion of resistance and the Israelis keep trying to topple us but can't and that proves that we're amazingly strong. Now, to Netanyahu, Israel not worrying about Hamas's strength. Israel, my microphone is... Okay, we're here we hear you. It's not even me shaking. It's a disconnect. Um, um, to to Netanyahu, strength is systemic strength. It's economic strength. It's institutional strength. To a lot of the rhetoric of the Middle East, generally, and unfortunately, including people like and Bengfier, they don't think that Jewish prayer on the Temple Mount is ju- they think it's a question of religion and freedom, and by the way, the redemption that's coming because of Zionists, etc. But, um, but they also think it's a question of showing who's boss. And if you don't show who's boss, you invite the next war. It's this kind of logic that strength comes from posturing. And Netanyahu is a man who believes, almost the liberal idea, no, strength does not come from let them posture. And by the way, sink into mud and despair, which is what a politics of posturing drives you. That's, Netanyahu is going to be constantly pulled into posturing. Netanyahu is a man who, after the uh, metal detectors went up on the Temple Mount, And uh, there was a huge Violence in Jerusalem and a lot of war and Hamas was making inroads in Palestinian politics because of it And Turkey was moving in in support of Hamas and money from Turkey was moving into Temple Mount organizations And then Jordan and Saudi Arabia and this conservative Muslim governments who opposed the Muslim Brotherhood branch of the Sunni Arab world went to Netanyahu and literally said to him Can you take the damn metal detectors off the Temple Mount to stop breathing so much Powerful wind into the sails of the Muslim Brotherhood all over the region over the threat to al-Aqsa Netanyahu took it down. And Smotrich and Benvi are the kinds of people who, and they specifically, but also their, their camps, interpreted that as weakness, and Netanyahu understands that as strength. And so th- this is going to, when we say 61 for Netanyahu, and Netanyahu's going to win, guys, I don't want victories like that myself in my own life. Netanyahu's going to suffer every day of the existence of his coalition, because there, the, 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 there's gaps there that are profound in culture and strategy and outlook. It's not going to be a fun place to be prime minister.
1: Although the last 2015 government lasted
3: three years, who sat in the 2015 government? It was it was it was diverse. It was relaxed. It didn't have fights over the Temple Mount too much. It had a it had a, a minister of public security who
1: advanced Jewish prayer rights on the Temple Mount. I Meaning, I'm I'm just saying, like I think it was a very narrow right-wing coalition, and everyone in it. I understood that if they didn't stick together, they would lose power, and 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 there was greater homogeneity in that coalition than obviously the outgoing government. And it didn't last an entire term, but it, it didn't do like 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 I said before, Bibi caved into
3: a lot of their demands. So yeah, he would definitely suffer. Um, but it could. Be I think Netanyahu's most difficult imagine. actor in the 2015 government uh, was Lieberman we brought in late to avoid the to expand beyond 61 when he had 61 seats after the 2015 election no reason you should remember this but people like dudiam Salim from likud likud mk uh, he had very strong feelings about ethiopian immigration and until netanyahu agreed with him on ethiopian immigration by the way for Ethiopian immigration, and he thought that Israel's policy toward limiting Ethiopian immigration is racist, and it was a very liberal thing to stand up and say, uh, but one Likud MK could hold up a state budget and threaten Netanyahu's entire government. Netanyahu had to cave on a piece of policy for one MK, and so in desperation to not have 61, Netanyahu brought Lieberman, who he hates, and also does distrust into the government, let him be defense minister, um, and 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 Lieberman was the, the wild card of that government. That is nothing. Smotrich was, by the way, the Crazy, radical, untouchable at that time in Netanyahu's view. Smotrich is now the moderate next to the Ben-Gvir, who is the guy he's going to have to keep on. Netanyahu is going to suck. I mean, if if you don't like Netanyahu. Him winning is not so terrible. For if, you, if you want to see him suffer, it's going to be, Tal, I learned from you today, it's going to be like seven years. If he's convicted... If you are going you are, to
2: expect us to, to feel sorry for him the next thing, right? What? We're winning, and then we have, we have to be sorry, feel sorry for him.
3: I've never met a politician I haven't felt sorry for. Him. <laughs> you have to sell so much of yourself on the way up, there's not always a lot left.
0: Okay. All right. We are going to move on. And uh, there are two very similar questions. So I'm going to read the first one. And this is for you, David. And we'll close our program with this. TY's investigative reporting on the binary options issue brought to light an issue that the public did not know about and ultimately created momentum for important legislative change. Mamash Really, thank you for putting the resources into that. Really, a big round of applause, yeah. But another even graver moral issue crying for such attention, especially now during the election season, is the issue of Israel's arms sales policy. Now, because of a lack of transparency, the Israeli public is unaware of the scope of Israel's weapons sales to regimes engaged in gross violations of human rights, and the criteria that go into the decision-making processes are also completely unknown. What do you, David and then whoever else, have to say about the dysfunction of a system in which almost all political parties pretend that this is not a political issue and hide behind the opaque policies of the defense ministry?
5: Okay. so. Uh, I actually want to answer the question before the but, and then Tal can take over from the butt because I have no expertise in um, Israeli arms sales and the processes um, beyond a very superficial understanding. First thing on the financial corruption is we have to credit um, our reporter Simona Weinglass, who did all the reporting and continues to do reporting on financial corruption. And the second thing is uh, indeed, legislation was passed directly as a result of her reporting and our coverage, but we didn't stop financial corruption. And there's some, you know, I could, I could speak forever, and I promise you I won't. Um, you know, it has mutated, um, it has, it has, uh, mutated. Um, it has uh, in some cases gone overseas, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a layer of corruption that, that afflicts uh, um, Israel. The police are, are radically outflanked and out-resourced um, and the, the crooks are getting smarter and some of them are no longer actually doing things that you could prove were illegal. They're just really, really shady now and incredibly profitable, so it's not like the chapter is over, and it's incredibly disappointing, and all the nice things that you said that are right about the economy in Israel thriving and so on, it's just a shame that, that, that a, a proportion of it, a little proportion of it, I don't think it's vast, although I think Simona might disagree, uh, is, is very, very tainted. There's, you know, there are people who are, who are abusive and, and cynical and brutal in terms of financial corruption, destructive. Um, so that's my uh, answer to the bit before the but. As for arms sales. Before Tal yes. gets
0: into that, really, I mean, Tachlis, this question was a, a cry for you to take on. This is an issue. Uh, definitely the second question. Was right. That. So,
5: you know, the, the, look, we, we have lots of material that comes our way. Um, and I can tell you in terms of financial corruption, for example, there's, there's a great deal of material that we haven't been able to publish because we can't stand it up to the necessary requirement. Uh, you know, when we started writing about binary options, we were threatened uh, physically, by the way, uh, and legally. And because our stories were strong, we were able to resist the legal pressures, including, by the way, by some of the best and most... Uh, um, um, Highly rated, shall we say, legal firms in Israel. It was very disappointing, apart from having to battle them, it was disappointing to receive threats from legal firms um, who you would have thought would find other clients that they would be more comfortable representing. In any, in any case, you know, when we come across material that we can find, find out that we think is important for the public to know, we, we do and we will. So if, if that's the case.
2: Now, Tal, I know you work wanna, on this topic all the time. No, I you want to say Thanks to David and to Simona one of the felonies uh, a woman that uh, an israeli woman that was uh, was part of this chain is now sitting in jail yeah in, but in she's
5: she's a middle level she, person and she was jailed for 20 but something she's years she's jailed in, yeah in, it's, but that so gives you an idea that that's one person we've never convicted a single person here of, of financial fraud in the billions right nobody's ever been convicted here her boss is still out there just right. fine she's not she's not a big time criminal, right. and she was jailed for 20 years. I, I, speaking of politicians, I actually feel a little bit sorry for her. She's, she's not the, the eye of that storm mm-hmm. at all, and she's the only one who's paid a really heavy price so far. So,
2: as for arms sales, um, I just want to, you know, I know it's uh, late in, in the discussion, but just, you know, bear with me for this. It's really important. Benjamin Netanyahu went on MSNBC yesterday for an important interview to promote his book. And he was asked about the connection of the Iranian drones that are being sold to Russia at the moment and being used against Ukraine. And this is what he told the um, Encores, And this is amazing because this is a story that we knew and we reported about back then. But apparently, Russia has been buying Israeli drones and making their own prototype. And some of those drones were sold from Russia to Iran and they're being used against Israel in the Golan Heights. So if you followed what I just explained, this was told by Netanyahu yesterday, obviously he didn't come up with the names and the details, but I know the details. Israel was um, producing the searcher uh, drones, selling the prototype to the Russians. The Russians sold it to the Iranians, and the Iranians were using it against Israel in the Golan Heights in 2016. This is just... um, Small, not a small, an anecdote or a story, not from recent history, this has just happened a couple of years ago. And this is what happens when a country is one of the biggest arms expo- uh, uh, exporters in the world. We have the data of Israel's uh, military sales, they are unbelievable high. Israel is rated 7th um, or 8th in the world for being exporter of arms sales, it's unbelievable number. And we know that in 2021 and 2022, the numbers were probably skyrocketed, doubled, tripled. I don't even know yet. Uh, and And 2021 was the biggest year of arms sales that Israel made ever in Israel's history. And in 2022, in uh, mid-year, around June, the numbers already suppressed. Uh, you know, went above the numbers of 2021. So, 2022 is going to be maybe more than double. Be- obviously, because of the Ukraine war, many European countries doubled their um, their military purchases, and uh, it's all you know, not all, but many of the purchases are coming from here. When we are selling to you know Western uh, countries, it's one thing, but On many instances, uh, our weapons are, you know, being shipped or, um, you know, in a change on a chain of of delivery arriving to the wrong hands in, you know, places uh, like in Africa, in uh, uh, um, um, in, uh, Myanmar. And there is a huge story about Myanmar's uh, arms sales that uh, Israel sold to them. Uh, Some Israeli politicians are trying to promote for many years, entering the same clause that the American uh, administration has when you cannot sell if uh, the country is uh, violating human rights. This is something that, you know, you have in America. And you also have an oversight of the committee, of the Armed Services Committee in the Congress. We don't have that here. The oversight is zero, and we don't have the human rights clause, and it's a huge problem, I think, well, for I, the country.
3: Can I ask you why? Um, the Knesset Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee, first of all, there are former generals seated there, and uh, defense contractors, and whatever. There are people with the expertise. The Knesset could take this over if it chose to they have could, oversight. Right? There's secret mm-hmm. subcommittees of that committee that oversee right? Mossad. And once also, it's
2: behind, the, once it's secret discussion and the press is not following the arms sales, it has it's meaningless. In the United States, the Armed Services Committee is um, transparent and the clause says you cannot sell. And, and even the arms sales that the United States was trying to do to the Emirates with the F-35 uh, is being under uh, public oversight or um, you know press oversight in the United States. It's not... It's not going uh, in secret meetings Uh, here. here, It's all um, not um, exposed to the public because the press cannot cover that. Now Tal, you recently
0: had an article, was it only in Hebrew or did we also have it Both in, in Hebrew and English? Okay, so look for this article and I just want you to explain about how you actually found the numbers because you did a lot
2: of digging but it, as you said it's not transparent here, so how did you find the numbers? So we looked into the numbers coming up from a foreign government's budget because they uh, as opposed to the military budget of Israel, the budget of Germany, the budget of Denmark, the budget of UK, they are transparent and they say exactly what deals there are, you know, and what they're buying exactly. So I just did, um, you know, um, used a, a huge database and cut it by only, I went into only 20, 2021 and 20, sorry, 2020 and 2021. The, the last two years, and looked at, you know, did like a, a research on those years, and as I said, the numbers are, I mean, people have to understand, this is coming to be about 8%, or between 8 to 10% of Israel's total exports of goods at all the military export is coming up to be 10% of Israel's export. This is huge, I mean, and it's, it's growing, and it will grow because of what happened in Ukraine. It's uh, on the rise. We just cut a deal with Germany to buy Aero 3 for about two billion euros, one of the biggest deals ever. So um, it's, uh, we, we, should, we should be aware to that.
0: And Tal, thank you for making us aware of it, Enjoy. really. A hand for Tal, because this is, Please. Thank you. What she did was what we call in Hebrew Ant's work. She spent the time looking and sifting and looking through these databases. It's really amazing. Thank you all of you for joining me here today. This was our last question. Thank you for celebrating with us our tenth anniversary at this TOI at tens event. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Paralyzed Nation. We'll keep bringing you our Times of Israel community members exclusive episodes, including our post-elections analysis. Special thanks to producer Gilad Brownstein and to Times of Israel community gurus Mick Weinstein and Rena Levin. Don't forget to drop us a line with a voice memo question and we'll include it in future episodes. Please send to podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until next time, shalom.